How about your 57-year-old man with a splenic marginal zone lymphoma? Sure. I'm presenting a number of fascinomas today, but in my opinion, this is the most interesting. This is a 57-year-old man with a history of untreated chronic hepatitis C. He presented to the emergency room with uh, fever, abdominal distension, was noted to be pancytopenic. CT scan of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis in October of 2010 demonstrated splenomegaly without adenopathy. His spleen extended 22 centimeters in craniocaudal dimension. A bone marrow biopsy was performed and demonstrated 20% involvement by marginal zone lymphoma. Patient was diagnosed with uh, splenic marginal zone lymphoma and he began therapy with weekly rituximab in November 2010. He received four weekly doses of rituximab and his pancytopenia failed to improve. So the decision was made to add bortezomib, which also has activity in splenic marginal zone lymphoma. And he received three cycles of rituximab and bortezomib between December of 2010 and March of 2011. His peripheral blood counts actually improved in a CT PET scan following completion of rituximab and bortezomib revealed only mild hypermetabolic activity in the spleen. Imaging with dedicated CT scans demonstrated a decrease in the size of his spleen as well from 22 centimeters to 16 centimeters. The patient underwent a bone marrow aspiration biopsy which confirmed a morphologic as well as a molecular remission based on PCR for immunoglobulin heavy chain gene rearrangements. Could I just ask what was done about his hepatitis? During that period of time that he was being treated, his hepatitis was only observed. We were keeping an eye on both his viral load as well as his serum transaminases. Since hepatitis C is implicated in the development of splenic marginal zone lymphoma, my plan was upon completion of his treatment to send him to a hepatologist to begin treatment for his hepatitis C. One could almost think of the interferon that you receive as treatment for hepatitis C as being maintenance therapy for his splenic marginal zone lymphoma as well. The patient underwent a liver biopsy, which demonstrated no evidence of cirrhosis. So at that point, the plan was to promptly move forward with treatment of his hepatitis C. So just before going on, maybe just backtrack a little bit, Mitch, and just comment on the issue of screening for hepatitis. Did he have abnormal LFTs? No. So he was picked up on screening, basically. What are your guidelines? What are the NCCN guidelines for screening? And then what about this issue of treatment as it relates to chemo R? Right. So let's start with hepatitis B, where I think the guidelines are pretty clear that these days anyone who's going to get rituximab, which means basically anyone with B-cell lymphoma, should be screened for hepatitis B. If you have antigen or core antibody, you should be on hepatitis B antiviral therapy before you get rituximab or rituximab chemotherapy. Who you screen, we basically screen everybody. Some areas where the incidence is so low, they're willing to screen only people with abnormal LFTs or history. But, you know, I just, a patient with a new B-cell lymphoma, I'm sure they're going to get rituximab someplace. I get a hepatitis panel. 
I get HIV. You know, it's just easier to do it all at once and not have to go back and say, well, you know, it's acting funny. We want this. So hepatitis B, we screen for, and if they're positive for antigen or core antibody, we would get them on treatment, make sure their viral load is under control before we give them chemotherapy if we have the luxury of waiting as we do in low-grade lymphoma. Hepatitis C is not as clear. Here's a guy who has normal liver enzymes. He's got no evidence of cirrhosis. His hepatitis C is being monitored. His viral load is low. The evidence for activation with rituximab is less. So you can certainly argue that you know, there was no rush to treat him. On the other hand, as Lyle mentioned, hepatitis C has been implicated in marginal zone lymphoma and splenic marginal zone lymphoma. And so I have several patients, two at least, who I treat with hepatitis C and marginal zone who's, when they're on interferon for their hepatitis C, the hepatitis C levels go down and their disease gets better. Objectively? Objectively. I have one guy who has like circulating lymphocytes of about 15,000. And when he's on interferon, it goes down. Then he gets really depressed, comes off the interferon, they go up. And then we put him back on interferon and ribavirin. So now interferon is anti-lymphoma effect. So is it interferon working on the hep C? Is it working on the lymphoma? Is it working? You know, I don't know. Now those are, you know, he's got some white counts asymptomatic. I can afford to play that game. This guy has a big spleen and, you know, other things. And I doubt that treating him with interferon and ribavirin would have cured his splenic lymphoma. But not sure that you couldn't have started both together. I was curious about the bortezomib. Was there some rationale for using that as opposed to something else to add to the rituximab? Or? No, there is data for bortezomib in marginal zone lymphoma. Yeah, certainly, yeah. it looks, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious whether, yeah. you know. Yeah. Anything uh, else that you might have considered? Well, again, you know, the same low-grade lymphoma, bendamustine, bortezomib. I think, you know, any of the usual suspects one could think about. The NCCN guidelines basically not in this specific setting, but talk about the splenic marginal zone, either rituximab or splenectomy, are probably the two choices, and then rituximab plus chemo, probably lower on the list. But he tried rituximab, and it didn't work. So you're trying to shrink it to make the splenectomy easier and get the hepatitis C on board. So again, there's a lot of ways to try to approach this, and I don't think anyone knows what's right, but certainly reasonable rituximab and anti-hep C therapy would have been a reasonable plan Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way. Right. The other thing that prevented him from getting hep C therapy while he was undergoing treatment of his marginal zone was the fact that his counts were so low that the hepatologist who actually saw him right after I diagnosed him refused to treat the hepatitis C until his counts were better. So we had to make his counts better. So he completed four weeks of rituximab followed by three cycles of rituximab, bortezomib, his counts recovered and his bone marrow demonstrated a molecular remission. Approximately two weeks later, he presents to the hospital with fever and is noted to be pancytopenic. He had an extensive infectious disease workup, which was negative, and he subsequently developed hypercalcemia of malignancy with subsequent renal failure requiring hemodialysis. When you say hypercalcemia of malignancy, how did you make that diagnosis? We made that diagnosis by ruling out other causes of hypercalcemia and him having an elevated calcium with a virtually undetectable intact parathyroid hormone level. And what were you thinking in terms of the renal failure? I believe that the renal failure was secondary to the hypercalcemia. His calcium level had gone up to 14 and was refractory despite aggressive hydration pomidronate, calcitonin, and high-dose steroids. 
Did he have an M spike? I meant to ask you that earlier. Did he have a monoclonal gammopathy associated with his? No. 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 Can't implicate that as the cause of the renal failure. No. Okay. No. No. Sounding a little bit unusual there, Mitch. It is absolutely unusual. <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> so at this point, in order to further investigate the cause of his pancytopenia, which was refractory to granulocytocholine stimulating factor, the patient underwent a repeat bone marrow biopsy, which did demonstrate a small B-cell population consistent with mild involvement by his underlying lymphoma. He was imaged, and his spleen had increased in size. Now it was approximately 21 centimeters in cranial caudal dimension. Given his refractory pancytopenia and his deteriorating condition, that being his refractory hypercalcemia of malignancy, him requiring hemodialysis, and him becoming moribund, the patient underwent emergent splenectomy, which confirmed extensive involvement with his marginal zone lymphoma. Did they do um, that laparoscopically? They actually had to open him up, only because it was so large. Right. However, unlike typical marginal zone lymphoma, the specimen had a KI-67 proliferative index of 30 to 50%. Following splenectomy, his pancytopenia promptly resolved, his hypercalcemia promptly resolved, and his renal function returned to normal. The decision was made at that point that he needed more therapy other than just removing his spleen. And he began systemic chemotherapy with the RCHOP regimen in June of this year. But just to clarify, did he have known disease anywhere? No. Actually, from the very beginning, his disease was only localized to his spleen and his bone marrow. And we treated his disease. We did not completely treat the disease in the bone marrow, but clearly the disease in his spleen was making him critically ill and he had a significant amount of cytoreduction with his splenectomy. How did he do with that, incidentally? Um, oh, he did fine. He did fine, and it was actually quite traumatic how quickly his counts came up, how promptly his hypercalcemia resolved. In fact, all of the interventions that we had given to him beforehand, i.e. the bisphosphonate, the calcitonin, the steroids, that probably all caught up with him and he actually became hypocalcemic for a day until that was replaced and his kidney failure recovered. So he was only on hemodialysis for four days, but he bounced back pretty quickly given how ill he was. So my question for Mitch was the following, even though the splenectomy specimen was not consistent with transformed lymphoma. This, more than anything I've ever seen, behaved like transformed lymphoma, behaved very quickly. And so my question is, is what would you do next? Would you continue chemotherapy with the RCHOP regimen followed by an autologous transplant? Or would you complete RCHOP chemotherapy and then, assuming that the patient is in remission, treat his hepatitis C as the infection was likely implicated in the development of the splenic marginal cell lymphoma? So those are pretty straightforward questions. Mitch, what's the answers? Oh, tons of data on this. Uh, <laughs> so I agree. I mean, you have to go with the clinical picture. And while histologically this was not transformed, you know, with transformation sometimes in the spleen or on the CT scans, you'll see holes in the spleen, you know, focal lesions, you don't see that. This is diffuse, but 
you got to respect this guy's disease. And I would agree, you have to, you know, give him the benefit of the R-CHOP. You know he has disease in the bone marrow, so presumably whatever those cells in the spleen are are probably circulating and will grow back if you don't do anything. So now you've got the issue, it's transformed lymphoma. How bad is that? And it turns out that, you know, if you've had several prior treatments for low grade and then you transform, those tend to be chemotherapy refractory and don't do well. And clearly, the only hope there would be to transplant them. Here he got some rituximab and some bortezomib, but he's got RCHOP really as the primary chemo. So there's a chance that he would do all right with RCHOP without stem cell transplant. Question is, are you willing to take that chance? And then you could say, well, you know, he does have hepatitis C. If we control that, maybe that will remove the driving force. But again, that's usually for the low-grade disease. And I don't think this aggressive component is hep C-driven. So I think that's long past any antigen stimulation. So he's young, he's healthy, he looked pretty good when we saw him. And I would probably give him the benefit of the doubt and say, let's not look back and say, what if? I would probably have him go through consolidation stem cell transplant saying you have transformed disease very aggressive and I would do that and when you can get the hep C treatment in I think is sort of the issue I'd like to have it on board to be honest with you before he went through more aggressive therapy but again with the counts and things I'm not sure you'd be able to do that but what are you been thinking so he was sent for a transplant consult he was sent up to Tampa, and the plan is for him to complete six cycles of RCHOP chemotherapy followed by an autologous hematopoietic cell transplant, and thereafter he will complete his course of treatment for hepatitis C. I was having discussions with his gastroenterologist, and with newer treatments for hepatitis C, he would still be looking at a minimum of six months of therapy to hopefully eradicate his hepatitis C. And so the thinking was was that let's get his auto transplant out of the way first and then consolidate him or maintain him with were the transplanters concerned about transplanting him in the face of the active hep C? I mean, it's chronic. It's not really mm, active. But. Yeah. So what they told him, which I thought was interesting, and there's currently a paper that's being produced looking at outcomes with auto transplant for patients who have hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And survival-wise, there is apparently not a significant difference in outcome among patients who are hepatitis positive and negative. So while that's always been a concern for all of us who treat lymphoma patients with hepatitis, I was encouraged, as was the patient, to hear that. And the patient wants to move forward promptly with treatment. Any overall impressions of him as a person? Who was he with today, Mitch? And, you know, somebody sounds like he was mighty sick. Now he's a lot better. He's clearly a lot better. <laughs> he looks quite fit, and you would never know what he'd been through. I mean, when looking at him, he looks like you know, picture of health. Anything that comes across in terms of him as a person? He was actually quite fit going into this. He's always been accompanied by his wife. And while he said that he felt well up until a few weeks before he initially got sick, his wife corrected him in that many, many months ago, he was running five miles a day. And in the few months prior to him getting sick, he stopped doing that. He was very active, and then he became more fatigued. So final question, though, Mitch, anything new in terms of the biology and understanding of marginal zone lymphoma, splenic marginal zone lymphoma, and also the hypercalcemia malignancy? Yeah, so in the biology of the marginal zone, I still think the big question is, is nodal marginal zone, extranodal malts, and splenic, are they really different or the same diseases? And we still don't know that. I'm sure we'll be seeing some microarray studies coming out in the near future, which we'll talk about that. 
But right now we don't know. There's no specific cytogenetic abnormality in many of these. Some of them, the gastric malts do. But unfortunately, I don't think we have as good a sense of the biology of these as we would like to have, except the hep C question, which I think really you know, does drive some of these and gives you something you can target. The hypercalcemia malignancy, first of all, lymphoma is a very uncommon cause of that. When you do see it, especially in Hodgkin's, we tend to think of it as being due to granuloma, similar to what you see in sarcoid. So it's really dihydroxyvitamin D metabolism, and they usually do respond to steroids to treat the disease and the hypercalcemia. So this case seems clearly different. This sounds more like the squamous cell lung cancer that secretes PTH-related peptide and things like that. And I can't recall ever seeing a lymphoma patient who presented in this way. So it's got to be vanishingly rare.